0: Hello, and welcome to Sound and Image Lab, the Dolby Institute podcast. This is a show about how artists use technology to tell their stories, and I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Today, we're talking about one of the most visually exciting movies to come out so far this year, The Batman. This is actually part two of our conversation about this epic new movie. On our last episode, we got to sit down with co-writer and director Matt Reeves, as well as his music and sound team to talk about their incredible work on this film. So if you haven't had a chance to check out that episode yet, you definitely should. But for now, we were lucky enough to have Matt stick around with us and be joined by the film's colorist, Dave Cole, to discuss how they crafted such a visually impressive film. And uh, of course, Uh, No conversation about the photography and the imagery of the Batman would be complete without the director of photography, Greg Fraser, who uh, will join us later on in this episode. He was actually, we we tracked him down on location in London to join us to ask some questions about this film. So you'll hear that part of the conversation at the end of the episode. So this is another big episode in two parts. So let's jump right into the conversation where Matt discusses how he and Greg came up with the visual approach To the new Batman movie.
1: For me, point of view is subjectivity and point of view is super important. And so, this idea of visually trying to experience the movie from Batman's point of view as much as possible, and really the only other point of view that you experience it from is the Riddler. Because other than that, they're essentially scenes that involve Batman. But even that was meant to evoke the comparison between the two of them. Like they're they're both voyeurs, they're both watchers, and so that visual idea is something that, first of all, it's important to me as a filmmaker. I almost always approach things that way. But it was it's all was sort of embedded in the script. And Greg and I, you know, we worked together on Let Me In, and I just Greg is. A brilliant cinematographer. I mean, he's he's just incredible, and I love working with him. And we, you know, I mean, I I wanted the movie to have a kind of um, sort of almost like a 70s sort of policier, like a thriller or like All the President's Men, a kind of paranoid sort of, um, you know, conspiracy film from that era um, because I wanted Gotham to be such a major character. And so Greg and I as we did on Let Me In and as actually we've done many times in between too on just other things, like we send each other images. And so we looked, we watched films together. We watched uh, Clute, um, Alan Pakula shot by Gordon Willis. Mm-hmm. Um, we watched Chinatown. We watched, uh, we watched this, we watched not In the Mood for Love, but The Hand by Wong Kar Wai. We watched wow. a lot of stuff okay. together. Uh-huh. Um, and then Greg would send me still images, even when I was writing. So we would send stuff, like very early on, we would send stuff back and forth, and I would send him pages and give him a sense of stuff, and he would send me images. And so this idea um, of that sort of sense of atmosphere, um, it began at a very early stage. And and our, our discussion actually to work together on this began as I was finishing War for the Planet of the Apes. We had been, after Let Me In, we had such a great experience together, and we were trying to sort of find a way to work together, but our our schedules Mm -hmm. never quite, there were a couple times where it felt like it was close, and then it didn't happen, and then this one, it realigned again, and we both were excited to do it. And so, um, that's really how it started. And one of the things, you know, when I, when we did Let Me In, I wanted to shoot it anamorphic, even though the movie was very intimate. Mm -hmm. And part of that was that I liked the idea of that sort of anamorphic image, which is a widescreen image, but in intimate spaces so that you you experience the world of the character, even in intimate spaces. But then those lenses have a particular character that, you know, the lenses, especially the ones that were developed, you know, the ones that were kind of inspiring us in like the 70s, those are some pretty messed up lenses technically.
0: So you didn't want to shoot in Super 35 and then extract. You wanted to actually no, shoot anamorphic. No, because, anamorph- because the
1: anamorphic lens has a particular quality. There's a way in which... The, the bokeh and the, the focus fall off and actually in particular, I mean, what's so interesting, what Greg did to push it even further was that, you know, we looked at certain lenses and he was like, well, you know, these are the lenses that the camera house thinks are broken. And they were great. <laughs> they, were, they had such unique quality. Character. Yeah, the character to them because – and so, it, it, in fact, they were so wrong – Technically, that essentially there were the edges of the, and Dave will know about this. Like we had the edges of the frame, were completely distorted. Uh-huh. And so you, you know, that the focus might, by the way, sometimes the focus was in the weirdest part of the frame. You'd be like, what is going on? But it was, we, we had a lot of attention toward making sure to put the thing that had to be in focus. Almost like that George Miller thing, you know, where you like, where the center of the frame, your eye has to go to that and that's got to be the sharp place. And then, because a lot of times, you know, if you're doing widescreen, you can take things and spread them out a certain yeah. way. And this character might be, you might be in focus on him and it's the side of the frame. That wasn't, these lenses were so messed up, that wasn't the approach. We would not do that because the idea was how can we use the texture of the lenses, the texture of film, the texture of all of these things in order to take what could be a kind of um, sort of very pristine and cleanness of digital, because we were going to shoot it on the Alexa LF, um, and introduce it in a way that would give you that kind of texture that would make you feel the atmosphere Mm -hmm. of this place and would also give you that sense of, the the subjectiveness of being in that point of view. And so we very early on, I mean Greg grabbed a some lenses and before, you know, we did anything before while while I was still writing, we took an Alexa LF and we went into downtown LA and then those were some of our very first tests, right? Well, Sam. And we were shooting into the night and just trying to get a sense of what is what could Gotham look like. Right. And so the lenses and then Greg's what Greg wanted to do was to allow for again, the sharpness of what you can get with the really technically perfect lenses and the sensor on the on the Alexa LF, which is, I mean, an amazing camera. It's a beautiful camera, um, but it could be so clean. And so the idea was, well, how can we take all of the, the sort of texture that we associate with movies of the era that we were sort mm-hmm. of inspired to do, that kind of 70s stuff, and one of the ideas, which I know that he did partially undone, which was to go to negative, but we were going to take it even further, which we did, which was to actually go to IP. So there are sections mm-hmm. of the movie that literally are, are like scanned back IP, mm-hmm. and it was all so that we could get in that very particular sort of texture that would make you feel like you were immersed visually in this world. Uh,
0: Dave, I'm curious. Um, I think you know there may be some people listening in on, on our show who um, are, are not familiar with the... the the ins and outs of what you do as a colorist, but maybe if you can lead us into what's your relationship with the cinematographer, Greg Fraser, how does that, how do you work together? How does that conversation start? Because he's not sitting with you all the time when you're doing the final, you know, color correction pass.
2: No. um, Well, Greg and I have um, established our relationship, our current relationship, probably over the last um, four to five years, Um, starting in pre-test because Greg does a lot of tests uh, when we worked on Vice together, we were actually, unbeknownst to me, we were also pre-testing the Batman at the stage. <laughs> you didn't know that's what we were doing. <laughs> no, it was it was. There's some other projects we might want to do some stuff with. So that's when we were actually developing some techniques that we we actually did on this film. Um, but yeah, our relationship has 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 grown through that experimentation, through doing the actual grades, and then now you know. Extensive testing on this film, we build the. We end up working out how to do the uh, the lookup tables, so the way that the images will look in dailies and what we work under. So that's like the broad stroke um, tonalities, color densities of the film. We work that out so that, as Matt said we're seeing what the movie's going to look like. We don't discover it later on and say, oh, let's try this or that. Like, we do so much testing up front, we know basically the lane that we will be in at the end, and then it's all of the fun stuff rather than the discovery. It's like, no, we've done the discovery up front. And then once we get into post-production, early on, Greg actually went in and built a colour bible, of the film so selected selected shots which covered every scene of the movie wide some close ups then we sit down we create that look um work out everyone kind of looks at that and says yep that's still in the world that we are and then we start doing the grade uh greg was involved with with the grade he was in the room with me for quite a few weeks and then went away to do some other shooting we'd established so much of this stuff over the course of two years you know I just kept on going I know where we want I was taking creative liberties and everything but again having the discussions I was pretty confident where we were heading like was good and then we had uh, our first real taste of it all was the teaser in 2020 yeah and that was like you know we haven't had conversations per se about this I just did this. What do you think? And I remember, like Matt and Greg sitting in a theater over uh, in the UK, saying, yeah. "Yeah, that's it." So it was yeah. good. So we knew pretty early that we all had a very well. Our sensibilities are the same anyway. I think we have, we are very much in in cahoots with with the look. But just from those discussions and tests,
1: yeah, we had arrived. We
2: really at what it
1: was going to be. Yeah. And, and and Dave was he really. Already, he, he had such an intuitive understanding of what it was going to be. And I remember, you know, Greg saying to me, because this is actually our first time working together, and he said, he goes, I, ha- I have just such trust in, in Dave. And 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 that process, I mean, Dave, first of all, I have to say also, just in terms of the stuff that Dave does that nobody has any idea of what he's doing, like, mm-hmm. there are things that he can do. And I go, like, how did you do that? There'll be parts of... And I remember, because I remember when we were doing, um, there was some stuff, I remember... Greg telling me years ago, gosh, you know, um, even when we were doing Let Me In, he said, look, this isn't quite how I want it to be, but, you know, if you're okay with this looking like this right now, I know that I can fix this in the DI. Mm -hmm. And there are times when, in order to get that thing done in 10 minutes, if if it need be or whatever that is, Greg will get it like, you know, 90% of the way there, but there's some piece of it that isn't like there. And then Dave can do things to deal with those things that you're like, I mean, by the way, down to sharpening parts of the frame building parts of the frame there are things that he does I'm like you're a magician like you know Dave comes from working with Peter Jackson and the the stuff I was so impressed and so taken with the way that you work and so he is a a critical part of doing things that I think people would have no idea what he's doing and I I would constantly go like wow how did you do that and then he would show me how he how he did uh various different things some of which I don't want to give away but you know what you did, yeah. But it's also <laughs> only it's, because I don't want to give away people's secrets. No, I, that's fine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
2: but it's also, I mean, we we do do a lot of fancy things, you know, under the hood. Uh, but it's all all driven by the story. Mm-hmm. Like it's not to say, look at me, look what we can do. It's like if it's if we ever have a scene where we're saying, hey, look at me. It's it's a story point. It's it's because we want the audience to have that visceral reaction. But every decision that we make in the in the color bay is driving the story. Just as like why every shot, why it was photographed in a way, why it was chosen in the edit, all those decisions have been made. So it's you know, I have to make sure that the audience is looking where they should look in the frame because it's there for a reason. Let's look there. But we also want to make it beautiful. We want continuity so it all looks like it's being shot at the same time. Um, but also we want to create a world that the audience can get immersed in. If if the audience is held at arm's length watching the movie saying, it's beautiful, but they're held at arm's length and they're not drawn into it, mm-hmm. then somewhere we have failed.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that idea of that kind of beauty, <clears throat> that's almost too clean. Mm-hmm. It's this, this idea of this texture. There's a way in which... Beauty can be, you can look at it, and it can remove you, and it can become an object that you're watching from a distance and admiring, as opposed to, in a way, it's about making things imperfect and not letting things be too too clean in a way that makes it feel, again, like that thing you could put on a wall. Not that these images, all of these images could be put on the wall, but they've got that visceral quality. The movie had to have a very visceral side to it, and that It happens in the visual. It's a critical part of it. We're trying to take you into an experience. And so, you know, I think of like David Lynch movies. You know, we talked about that. Mm -hmm. And this idea of one of the things that was important to me was the idea of how Batman emerges from the shadows. What do shadows look like? What does that mean? Can you? Because you see a lot of things that are, you know, you see a movie where there's supposed to be shadows, but you can see it's lit and you can see that it happens in a way where you're going like, well, that's not really a shadow, but what does it look like when he materializes out of that? And when is he just in the readable black? And what, you know, the idea of contrast is an important thing too. There's a part where if the contrast gets too given how dark the movie is, if if the highlights are too bright, you might not be able to see the detail, but I wanna be able to see that detail on the low end and all of that stuff and, and a softness to it too, so it doesn't start being too, I don't wanna say commercial, but there's a way in which things can look very, um, I don't know, crisp in a way thats that doesn't make it feel approachable. It doesn't make it feel like you're in something. You know, like when we shot things, even like the Batmobile chase, even though there's a tremendous amount of like visual effects in the movie, I didn't want you to be aware sure. that we were doing them at all. And so we always used the, the parameters of how you would do it if you were doing it practically. And so you, if we have the, the, the Batmobile chase, we're putting cameras and we're putting it on, we're locking them onto, you know, hard mounts so that you're right. watching a lot of hard mounts and that kind of stuff. And then what's that in focus in? And then it's in the middle of rain. And what does that rain look like? And there were times when Greg would take a silicone filter and put a little bit of silicone on it. I mean, people take a filter and put a little bit of silicone and so that when you put it in front of the lens and when it got wet, you had the sense that it wasn't just that we were in rain Hmm. that was perfectly photographed. The lens itself got wet so you feel like you're in the middle of it and so everything was about putting you squarely in that experience.
0: I really appreciate that because I think one of the things, as you say, there's a tremendous amount of visual effects and CG in the film, obviously, because you've got some amazingly large set pieces in the film, but it's not like Without naming names, uh, you know some other comic book movies, superhero movies that just kind of become like a CG, and all the you know, the the drama and tension drains away because yeah. you know you're not looking at something that's real.
1: And we wanted to take any sense of that away. I mean, obviously there's stuff in there that couldn't be done um, in in reality. So of course there's CG stuff in there, but the key was to do that in such a way that you know if you're shooting something against because because the nightmare when you're shooting a blue screen sequence it's a nightmare right cuz you're going like well there's nothing behind them so what are we framing i guess i'm framing the actor's head and what is the set and all of that and it, it's it's very it's a very daunting and frightening thing what we did that same sense of testing was super important so like in the in the biggest example of it is the uh the, the last climactic section of the film where they are in what was the u2 uh, the, the o2 arena mm-hmm. um and uh what was gotham square garden and we had a section up in the rafters that we just couldn't it wasn't safe to shoot that way mm-hmm. so we were shot on the set that was non-existent for what was there. I mean, you saw you basically had the the rafter part that they were on, and then they were against blue. And I knew that the movie had such a careful visual style because of the lenses and the character of the lenses throughout the whole movie that if suddenly you're in a section where the extensions are done and they don't take all that into account then suddenly you're going to go like, oh, we're in a different part of the movie. I guess this is the CG section, and that would have been my nightmare. So we did a lot of testing. Greg actually took the cameras and went up into the rafters at the O2 Arena just so we had some reference. Mm. And then we mapped all of these lenses so that Dan Lemon, who's our amazing visual effects ar- uh, supervisor who I worked with on Apes, he's just, again, from that Peter Jackson world, and, but he did the Apes films with me, and I think he's just bar none the best. And I would just say, like, here's the thing. I don't want this to be too, too clean. It won't look like the rest of the movie. And so he was pushing Scanline, did most of those effects in the end. And they took all of the references and they went back and looked through the stuff that we had done so that they could take, you would look behind him and I would say, like, I, want to, I want you to hit it harder. Make that image look more messed up. I want you to take the edges of the frame and let them to go softer. And so we actually went in and they did a lot of experimentation in the VFX so we could see the level of just how much distortion those lenses, which actually were not how we shot that sequence. Mm-hmm. That sequence, the lenses were a bit cleaner and we didn't, obviously, we were shooting blue screen, So it was like, how can we take those qualities and pull them into these scenes so that you never feel that moment where you're transitioning from VFX to what is practical photography. And that's true throughout the whole movie. I mean, there are a lot of visual effects. There are some purely virtual shots, but we always made sure that the textures that were existing in our practical shots were drawn into the VFX. So that way you couldn't look at it and go like, oh, OK, now's the moment where, you know, you're seeing the impossible done through computer effects. And we didn't want that.
0: Yeah. I want to ask you about Dolby Vision. I had the, the, the pleasure of watching the movie in Dolby Vision. Uh, and it seems like the film is, is you know, it, it's making such amazing use of dynamic range contrast and color. I just want to start by asking both of you, what was your first encounter with Dolby Vision? Do you remember when you saw it and sort of what what what, what kind of first reaction did you have to it?
2: Mine was um, in the very early days of it because we were experimenting. Dolby actually reached out to me from Fox and we had some Life of Pi footage. So we... we this
0: is Ang Lee's film. Ang Lee, I I yeah. Heard.
2: So this is... Many years ago, I kind of, <laughs> but but quite a few. But we came in; it was one of the, the the tests footage like that that we used, and we played around with it. And it was for me what was amazing is we spend so much time in the nuance world, stuff that people never see. They may feel, but they don't see. And when you release a film traditionally, theatrically, and I'll say in the modern world, so digitally or you see it on home video or anything like that. TVs can be anywhere. Theatres can be set up anywhere. We have, there's there's specifications that a cinema should be set up in a very particular way with a particular light level and everything. That is not reality. What was fantastic about when I first came into Dolby Vision uh, and have a look in the theater is one, we had this extended range. So we could reach down into the blacks that we haven't seen since we were purely film, mm-hmm. because traditional the well at the stage the um, the digital projectors couldn't reach a black that was close to like a, a printable stock, let alone a vision like a like a premiere stock which had even black. It just you could not do it. So being able to suddenly see into these blacks again was well, this is. We're seeing what is photographed rather than being the limitations of the display mechanism imposing on the creative. Um, so so that was the big thing. But it was also the, the, for me, knowing that when people went and saw it in Dolby Vision, it would look like what we did and what we signed off on. So that wild west of where the projectors and the theatres are you know, as hard as the projectors, like the, the distributors might, you know, they try to get it. I mean, the way these projectors work, the lamp dying, all of these things affected the exhibition. Part of what was great about Dolby Vision was like, no, we guarantee that every cinema that is doing Dolby Vision will look like this. So it really, I mean, it's rewarding for us because we spend so much time, you know, sweating over every little detail to know that the audience will have that exact experience. So that was the the real exciting thing for me. And we had this bucket to play in now that wasn't constraining us. So the limiters were released. And now if we chose to have air in the blacks, like like we do in a lot of this movie, to, to help with the contrast so we can see deeply into the blacks. Because as Matt said, if you have something very bright in shot, you iris down, you can't see. So, so contrast was a very big thing for us. But with Dolby, it wasn't the system saying, "Well, this is what you're going to get." It was like, "This is what we chose." This creatively, you were seeing where we wanted it to land. Mm-hmm. So that was that's the exciting thing for me, and and has been since day one when I first set eyes on it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that was uh, it's around that same time. It was on Dawn of the Planet of the Apes which was the first time I saw it, which was it was because we did that right after Pi. Mm -hmm. And so I remember seeing it and being blown away at the... Just that... To be able to have that tool of being able to set things within that dynamic range and to set things so precisely is really an amazing thing. And then, you know, did that on both Apes films to be able to... I think that's really the thing too is that you have the capability, as with any tool, you can take it to its extremes and it can be quite sort of dramatic. And if that's your intention, that's great. But I think it really is about being able to present something that is as faithful to what you wanted your film to look like that Dolby Vision is capable of doing that is really beyond any other format. I mean, it's an incredible... It's just the precision of it is amazing. And I even think the ways in which... Because you did pop the highlights a bit more than they than they could go elsewhere. There are places where it goes a bit deeper. But it also still has all of that softness. So for me, seeing the film in this is like... This is the exquisite way to see the movie. I just think it's incredible. The, the, the final version of the way this looks, it's like, okay, I just wish that there was a way that you could just snap your fingers and then when everyone sees the movie, this is the way it was going to look because it is so much, I think, the, the sort of culmination of what we would hope that the movie could look like.
0: There are a couple of sequences that I wanted to ask you specifically about that just really kind of I found remarkable. I, I love the the <laughs> the way you use red in this film. Yeah. You know, and, and, and red is not a, co- a color that I, would, that I normally associate with Batman, but I think you've changed the iconography around that. I think it's really...
1: You know, it's funny. That was something that happened. Like everything is very emotional and instinctual, right? You just do you do things and and uh, I did do a big deep dive in the comics. I will say that the the big red in that is that is a very classic treatment, a comic book treatment of the Batman title. And I don't know why, but when we were doing Rob Pattinson's screen test, he had to put on the suit. Um for some reason, I wanted, first of all, I knew that I wanted to see him put the makeup on his eyes in the mirror. It wasn't one of the scenes that was written. And in fact, after doing it, what Rob did was so special. I was like, we're going to put this in the movie. This has to be part of the movie. Because you always, you're always searching for that thing that sort of is creating a signature to mm-hmm. what you're doing that feels right. It's all very instinctual. And when we were doing that, I was like, you know what I'd love to do is I know, you know, Greg uses these LEDs, right? And the great things about LEDs is you can dial in exactly the color you want. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I'd love there to be no color but red. I just want to see him come out of the darkness. I want him to come out of that, come out of the shadows, readable dark. And I want him to walk up to the mirror. We had the light right over the mirror, so he's coming into this top light that felt to me like the red version of the Godfather or something, right? And he (laughs) he looked like he looked like a young Marlon Brando or something, right? I mean, he was just had such a beautiful face, and he just stared at himself. And I said, I just want to see what that moment is, Rob when you're deciding to transform. And he did that and there was something in that moment where I was like, well, this is this is the movie. I don't know why, I just know it is. And so that was one of those colors yeah. that I showed it to Greg, you know, obviously we were looking at it and we were talking about it and then the way Dave colored it and we were like, this is I think gonna be a foundation for something. And then Greg was like, Greg loved it. And he was like, he had ideas for other colors, which was when we were doing some explorations with Selena and, and we were working with Zoe. He just had this instinct about the cyan on her skin. And so that was another color that we draw it in. So it was an interesting thing where the comics can be very reductive Mm -hmm. in terms of like a bold choice of color. And given how, you know, we both are very cautious about being restrained, what we didn't want what Greg would call a dog's breakfast of color, where you have too many clashing <laughs> colors. It's always very precise where if you're going to do that, we might use the cyan might be, you know, the, the thrust of that scene. And then the red is somewhere else, or, you know, it's not necessarily going to be a clash of everything all at once. Um, but we did do in our testing, some search into specific colors that again, I can't say that it was it's all very instinctual. Something feel, starts feeling right. And it's why I love working with Greg, too, is because I think that he and I connect to similar things and we get excited about similar things. And so, like, he got excited about the red and I got excited about the cyan and the way Dave was coloring it for us in the dailies. And and there were... So, so the color part of it was very instinctual, but there's no question that it does reach back to the comics, even yeah. though, you know, there aren't necessarily a lot of comic book films, maybe, that have been shot sort right. of with that idea. It, it it was reflective of something that in our deep dive of the comics, I think, was there. So it was this weird thing where we wanted the movie to feel very grounded Mm -hmm. and very realistic in a certain way, but we also wanted something that felt, to me, the movie has to have a mythic sense. Like, this character's been around for 80 years, and the reason I think the character's so enduring is there's something about the tale that is mythic. There is something that is kind of resonant, and that quality of trying to find that intersection between the practical and the real, and yet something that's still mythic, um, and even for me, it's a weird thing. I have a very particular response to the color of sodium, the sodium colored lights. And mm-hmm. it happened with me and Greg on well, actually, it all went go back back to um to Cloverfield, a tremendous amount of sodium light. But we did that in 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 the scenes between the kids um in Let me In, and the kind of almost romance mm-hmm. of that color, that night color. Um, and so that was one of the things that we knew we, when we did some, we were looking at some photography and again, this is one of the things Greg will send me. Here's some stuff from Chicago at night. We shot this and we went back to Chicago. We took, that was some of the testing we did, right? Mm -hmm. We took the LF and we started shooting with anamorphic lenses, some really messed up lenses and just using the sodium light. So we knew that that would be in our palette. Mm -hmm. So there were certain colors that we started drawing into our palette and then they were always there and we would just look at what we were shooting and Greg would sometimes, he could dial it in and he could say, is this is this right for this scene? And there were some places where we were going to be pure red and then he was like, okay, so now there's too much red. Let's bring in just a little bit of the cyan and, the, and you know, and do a little kick of that yeah. here so it doesn't feel like it's just the omnipresent red. And so it's all very instinctual. It was a cool part of and it. And
2: what was, what was interesting is we never had a discussion on the red, but from that rob pattinson test yeah it was like we all felt it so i knew when i was grading it's like no this is going to be more because the the general palette of the film probably it's a dusty sodium vapor influenced world so we didn't want it also to be too Monochrome, and that was part of when we did the testing of going traditional uh skip bleach or bleach bypass. We didn't want all of the color sucked out,
0: desaturated. Yeah, right?
2: we didn't mind if it if it was muted, but by having these reds or signs or whatever, and when it punches through, you go: this film is not a desaturated film. It's this world has this, you know, that th- like that sodium vapor feel or the. You know it's it's like about Bruce's character being influenced from the world that he's in. And then there's this there's moments of rage or beauty or whatever. That's when the colour can really jump out. And so while we actually did skip Bleach the Neg, the way we actually did all of our colour science, we we made sure we could actually, instead of just sucking those colours out while retaining the silver, we could keep them in there, so that was like part of the really fancy stuff that we were doing. Was we t- we kept elements of what we liked yeah. in traditional the film world, but had the power to then ignore. And that ignore color it,
1: red know. was a particular you had to you did something very special to achieve that level because you red. could not get there. Yeah,
2: like it's it wasn't a color that we could actually get there. So I had to do this kind of crazy thing that you know the the technical inspectors would slap my hand and say, don't do that. But I went, but maybe if we did this, this, and that, and then suddenly went boom and we went, that's it. Like that's how we.
0: Well, I wanted to ask you about that because of course, one of the things about Dolby vision is that it's, producing Red in a completely different way. So you actually do have a a tremendous amount of control over Red in in Vision. And I love what you're talking about, about it's not a desaturated film. It's a desaturated world. And then something will come through, like the fight sequence uh, when uh, Batman comes into Falcone's Lair and you stage that whole fight sequence that's just lit by the muzzle flashes from the guns. Was that... I've, that's kind of a you're you're walking on a on a high wire there. Did you did you know that was was that part of did you you wrote the scene that way, apparently. I, 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 did, would, I, would
1: I did write the scene that way. And what's interesting is so Rob Alonso, who is our wonderful stunt coordinator and, and you know, he was the second unit director for me and did all you know, we worked hand in glove. I love Rob. And he was he's a former fighter, right? So he knows one of the things I wanted, I wanted a kind of real visceral quality to the fights and I said, you know, when 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 Rob walks out of that darkness and the guy says, what are you supposed to be? I said, I want it to be shocking. I want you to feel like this moment is gonna be like that moment in Goodfellas when you realize that Henry Hill, when he goes across the street Mm -hmm. and he beats that guy with a gun, I want you to be like, oh, he's gonna be this version of the character so that you understand that it's from a very visceral place, this sense of vengeance is coming. And I said, and I want it to play out in one shot so that people see Rob come out, they look at him, there he is, and then he just unleashes and you go like, oh and one of the things that i wanted was so he would bring me these these fight sort of uh, vises where he would then take the stunt guys and he would shoot it and and then say okay and then you know you could do it like this and he was bringing me that sequence and was kind of giving me sort of different shots and i said you know what i don't want it in different shots i want it in one shot and i said and 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 cuz there was a point where um Danny, who is our was our second unit um, DP, who works very closely with uh, uh, with Greg and worked with him on Dune. They were doing some research for us, so they were trying some of this stuff. And he was trying to do some, you know, put some light in the space. And I said, No, 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 no! I just want it to be muzzle flashes. And I said, You know, I did this on a, very briefly on War for the Planet of the Apes. And the reason I was able to do it was because when there's a moment where uh, rocket attacks this soldier in this cave and you see the muzzle and it's lit only by the muzzle flashes. You're you're seeing the laser beam. The laser beam comes up then the laser beam goes off because he's being attacked. And then the the, the muzzle flashes light the scene. It's very brief. And I was like, what I want to do is I want to have the ideas that Batman has these, his advantages, you know, they've got machine guns, but he can see in the dark. He comes out of the shadows and he can see. He's wearing those contact lenses. He has night vision, we know this. So I don't want you to look at it and go like, oh, they lit it as if it was dark. I wanted it to be dark. And I thought for sure, because of his costume, that we could do it, we could have a CG version and that the stunt guys would essentially be rigged and, and reacting to, guy, to, to someone who wasn't there, that we would stage it and we'd pull them out. And then Rob said, okay, I think I can do this for real. And I was like, you're kidding. And he got the stunt guys to work it out so that actually Batman was there and the whole thing was done with those. Now, it's a series of shots that are, it's one shot, but it's a series of shots that are all built into one. Um, And that whole thing was just, it was one of those things that started in the script, but then trying to find the way to execute that. I thought for sure it was going to be a lot of visual effects. And actually there's very, there are some visual effects, but it isn't about putting Batman there. Batman is there.
0: It was about stitching it.
1: Down. Yeah. It was about stitching it and was also about, you know, obviously we have muscle flashes going. So we wanted the bullet ricochets and all that kind of stuff. And we wanted the interaction of how that stuff would hit off of the chest and all of that. But it was one of those things where I couldn't believe that they were going to be able actually to do it with everyone all there together. And and they did. The stunt guys did an incredible job at that. And so that was, um, that was one, of, and this, it's one of those things where you just don't, you, know, you think, is that going to work? <laughs> I don't know if it's going to work, but. Uh, That's what I meant
0: yeah. when I said, you're kind of, you're, you're kind of on a, on a high wire there because you know, if it didn't work, well, shoot, I guess you would have had to turn on some lights or something.
1: But, yeah. Or, or cut out the scene.
0: Yeah. But can you talk about uh, putting that scene uh, to, together in final color?
2: Yeah. I mean, the, the Again, with the, what we've discussed before with contrast range, with things being too bright and then you can't see into blacks, this was interesting because we wanted mm-hmm. the impact. We wanted the, the punch into the face. But again, we still don't want people to iris down and not see anything. So there is a lot of air. So if you were still framing through it, on some of those shots, you can see the entire corridor lit up. It's not obvious when it's going on because you've got these flashes in the human eye cannot handle it. Um, so it was all about keeping a sense of space. Again, not making it look like there was any trickery that it really is, which it was. It really was guys in there doing it. Um, and then really making sure that the muzzle flashes lit and how much of the scene they lit um, to have the impact of it. So it didn't feel like, You're turning on lights, even if it is muzzle flashes. And then when we came into Dolby, it is the most extreme version of it because I did kind of say, well, if there's any time where I can go a little crazy and it's not like we have to see everything, it was that scene. So, you know, it is stretched a bit in there as well. But it's is—it's about capturing the moments of what it's lit. It's not about the muzzle flashes. Mm -hmm. It's the action that they light is what was most important in that scene that's so rare, that's rare what reported. that's where we set our levels was all about that the light that it creates what? well,
1: the is. gun had to go off in order for you to see certain things. like yeah. one of the one of my favorite moments in that moment is that at the end, when he's got the last guy down, he's beating him on the ground, but the only way you know is because the guy's involuntarily shooting. he's not shooting at Batman anymore, but he's lighting the scene. yeah you know, <laughs> and I actually love that kind of thing like to me, if we're using torches in a scene wherever you can, I love to let the torches actually as much as they can be the source because you can sometimes tell when someone when it's lit and then they've got their flashlights and you're going like, oh, it's not really lighting the scene and it has that thing and that's very much Greg's aesthetic as well is to be able to use those practicals to use those real lights and let them do the real job of what they're supposed to do in large part not always 100% but in a very like one of the things that was important to me and another place where you were dialing in that red was that flare moment at the end like I was really important to me because of what it meant that that flare be lighting the scene. And so there's a very subtle amount of sort of you know skylight to give it just a little bit of rim, just a little bit of like what does dark look like in pure dark? But that scene is is almost pri- primarily lit with that flare and the idea of letting that has a very particular powerful look. We put
0: out a, a on 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 the internet, we put out a, a call for questions for you. And one of the one of the ones that came in that I was really curious about, are there any uh, visual nuggets that you put in to the film for super fans as, a, as call outs?
1: Oh, well, I mean, I was a big Batman 66 guy, obviously, because I was born the year that that series started. And I remember talking to James Chinlin, who, by the way, we should say, like the realization of this world, the production design in this film, I think is extraordinary. The, what, what he was able to, to build is just extraordinary just beautiful beautiful work and i but i remember saying to him listen you know i really want that shakespeare bust that's from that study that was in there so you actually see it when when alfred's in there opening the mail before he gets blown up you see the the shakespeare bust and that gets knocked down and all of that and there are a lot of little things like that yeah for sure but that for me the shakespeare bust is the first thing that comes to my mind
0: I want to nerd out for just a second. So you, th- you you went to negative and then you did an IP and then you ble- you uh, bleach bypassed at which phase? Yeah.
2: So so the film was shot on the Alexa LF. And in a lot of the testings that we did with Craig, we had these lenses that were a little bit crazy and detuned. Broken. Even some more. Broken. Was, I according okay, according broken is. They were the rejects. <laughs> yes, they were the they rejects. They were the ones that we were yes. urged
1: not to use and that meant they were probably really good. Yes, and some of them were
2: detuned a little bit more. Um, Detuned But but part of the discussion that we had was We always wanted to go to IP So when you go through that that process You could say a traditional film process You have your negative You make an IP So they get stuck together and, and printed Then that IP makes another negative To then what you can make prints of Right in the best form is you have your original negative and you make a print. So that's how traditionally we would do answer prints to sign off on. You could show prints else. from the original negative it, And things like that. It looks beautiful, right? So on this film, it was shot on digital with these detuned lenses. So Greg always knew that, okay, we're going to lose some resolution because every time it goes through that process, we have it. So he chose lenses for that situation. And then when we got to the final process, we would choose the shot as well based on the resolution. So, what we did is we graded the entire film digitally. And when we were making our, when I was doing the initial pass, it was all done pure digital and clean then when Matt and Greg were in the room and we we're being really creative, I put an emulation le- layer on there to say, it's going to look something like this mm-hmm. once we've gone through the photochemical process.
0: And that that was just a series of, of what uh, calculations that you had made to kind of emulate.
2: From what, a lot of tests, I get the same footage that's gone through it and not gone through it. And the wonderful thing of working at photochem is we are a lab. So we can just Pump out sure. film and bring it in and scan it in, so there was a lot of direct comparison. So it's not just putting a bit of grain on there. You know, there's weave, there's there's um, shears happening to it because it's optical, so it kind of bends the image. There's there's dark shade areas. There's flicker in independently in the different channels. There's grain. There's halation. You know, there's defocus. There's blur. There's like there's a lot of elements that would go in there. But knowing it was only for emulation, but it was so we all got the vibe. So again, if we were feeling, oh, something might be a bit soft, maybe we can sharpen it up before we go to film and things like that. So what we ended up doing, we finished the film digitally, viewing it like that. Then we turned that off so that we put a nice clean signal to the negative. We, we, we shot it to negative, and then we skip bleached that negative.
0: You skip the negative, and then went to IP, and
2: then we went to IP. We did lots of tests. We skip bleach IP. We just skip bleach. So I, for we, maybe, did, we did lots of different ways of working this to out. to
0: figure this out. But yeah. so for maybe uh, for folks who are listening and who don't know what uh, skip uh, 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 bleach bypass or skip printing. Uh,
2: okay, so so normally when you have a negative film, it goes through a processor, and that bros- processor has various baths that set the image fix the image and part one one of those baths is is called is the bleach and it removes excess silver from the film right so when you skip bleach you're leaving the silver on the film so the way it reacts with color and the way it reacts with highlights and halation and density is what that skip bleach look is so 7 is a is a is a very obvious sure. example of something that's gone through that process um so we skip bleach the NEG. You can skip-bleach IP. You can skip-bleach print NEG. So we did many, many tests of like 70, 80, 100 different ways of doing things. Amazing. Um, and then working out how to pull it all back. But we found out from these early discussions that we liked an element of traditional skip-bleach, but we didn't like all of this other stuff. Sure. So we wanted the lower contrast. And skip-bleach is just not lower con. We wanted to be able to have these saturated colors when they hit, again, not part of a traditional skip bleach. So by doing this special system of of putting the um, digital onto negative, we allow the photochemical to do the skip bleaching, but then we can restore all this stuff back digitally afterwards. So it was it was really wonderful, and then because that neg is skip bleached, the IP is receiving that same halation factor and, and all of the good stuff we like from the from the neg, and then we bring it all back in. Our color science does his crazy propeller head stuff to actually make it usable image for me that works in exactly the same way of how it's been working. It's just gone through this wonderful yeah. photochemical random process, and then we match it again so so the scientific way gets me back 90 percent of the way there and then we visually go through and even it out because when you look at it especially with ip the colors change a lot within sure. a shot when we look at the digital version of this it's pure it is pristine it is graded within an inch of its life however when it's gone through this process especially on ip You look at one shot, it's like red, pink, green, something, all within one shot. Like it's just changing color because of just chemicals. It's it's chemicals, it's the emulsion, it's everything. And that was part of the beauty of what we love with this process. It was this complete nut of randomness. And we were all like, like I said to Matt early on, it's like, it's going to be close, (laughs) but it's not going to be exactly. We didn't know what it was going to look like. No, no. And so I said, as long as we're all like open to the fact of, it's going to do its thing. I mean, it is very close. I mean, it's not like it's a different thing. It wasn't movie. radical, but it's still no, but it's, it's doing but it, stuff. But it, but it yeah. does stuff. And that's why we chose to do it. Otherwise, we could have just emulated it. Sure. But it's that, that, it's, it's you know, the organic. It's the organic. It's just doing things that we wouldn't have thought about. So then we would bring it back in and then we would match grade it to look like it. And then we'd do our final pass. So then we'd sit down and watch the movie and we go, And we'd just continue on with the creative, but now that was our source.
0: Yeah. Well, and and you also had it to use as an element or not used, depending on the particular shot and the particular needs of, of, oh, that's really interesting. And so we would go- There's probably,
1: what, one or two digital shots in the whole movie? Two, right? I would
2: say there's there's three, Three. but two are effectively a shared shot. Yeah. Um, And one of those was chosen- because of a resolution we just wanted yeah. to it really sharp enough, yeah. I hit home a story point point. Yeah, and the other one was just it was a weird light in the background and we just said you know and and the thing is i then just emulated it directly because i had an exact thing that i was matching to so there is no way you can people could possibly know which one is not because it's for a shot if it was over the course of the movie then there will be telltale signs of like you know, no, you're emulating or not. But when it was just a shot here or there, you, you can't tell. But then that's what we did as the final pass is we, we all sat down. We did a technical kind of decision, like, you know, what is the, the nicer version of the shot in terms of sharps or if there just happened to be weird things happening on the film. And we sat down and then we'd go, let's go back and have a look there. And then we'd just choose... Maybe it wasn't as nice as I said before, but we'd choose it. Or maybe that can be a little bit cleaner, because Matt would say, "No, it's really important that we see this on one of the monitors." Some
1: detail, maybe you we know, need to read something. We you need know, to. Yeah.
2: We need like it's 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 not needed for the story, but that that depth of of um is is needed, you know, just to to help. Well, because we the introduced
1: world. so much defocus just before we ever got like just to, onto what we shot onto the LF, right? So yeah. like there's you know we shot with an image intensifier as well and there it, what that did and then the color of that because we didn't you know i wanted when we were testing um the image intensifier we we're trying to figure out if these if these uh, um contact lenses are night vision then we should try using real night vision. So we shot with real va- night vision, but we wanted them to be Batman's night vision, so they shouldn't be that sort of telltale green, right, that you see when you're seeing, like, that kind of footage. So we're taking that, and then, you know, Dave's taking that and pushing that kind of into a sort of a, a pinker reddish kind of tone, so it feels more signature Batman. And then that thing is responding to light and to— it's not it's not a precise instrument. I mean, that it's on this long tube. It's a crazy—the image intensifier. So, like— not only we have crazy lenses, we have crazy systems, and then on top of that, to do film on top of that. And so there were all different kinds of reasons why we would tweak between whether or not it should be negative, whether or not it should be IP. I mean, it was, it was a very, uh, it was an exciting process. It
0: sounds like it was a lot of experimentation and a lot of time that you took to kind of dialogue. Well, I mean, even
2: just with the Image Intensifier, getting that color was, I mean, it was, I would have to say, and I don't know about you, Matt, it is the most footage I've ever dealt with from testing of any film that i've ever done Mm -hmm. hours and hours and hours of footage like in locations like in london and scotland and chicago and then these cameras and then how projection systems work you know because there's there's the scene in in the old orphanage with projecting so like oh yeah
1: honestly it was crazy we also shot like the riddler greg and i i I mean (laughs) you know we're we're idiots. But like, it was this kind of thing where he's filming on his phone, right? So we're going like, well, he could just film, you know, on an iPhone, but they're pretty clear. So then of course, we get a whole range of these kind of counterfeit phones, and this one counterfeit phone, I mean, honestly, it was a nightmare that we shot, because it ended up, we started having sync issues, like, it's one of these things, you're just looking for the right texture, and it just feels like, well, that's kind of really signature, right? That look is very uh, unsettling. It was a terrible image, but so we shot, I mean, the number of different ways in which this film was shot, I mean, you watch the movie, and you think you're seeing, like, the movie, but when it comes down to between the lenses that were used, and then the way that night vision was used, the fact that we were doing stuff that we shot that was meant to have been shot 20 years ago mm-hmm. so it was before you were shooting in hd so we shot on standard def and then projected that on the wall we had and then all of that was supposed to align in such a way that you realized that he was standing in the same place where that footage was shot 20 years ago when he was a kid mm-hmm. like there were so many layers to the visual exploration in this yeah the testing that we did was
2: yeah. crazy but it really i mean it is a very expensive expensive you know experimentation film i mean like we we did a lot and then that whole film thing that we did helps tie everything together so it is just
1: of it's the last level of there's it's a, one, it's all of a piece yeah, yeah.
0: i'm excited cuz i know you're going to get to release exclusively in theaters uh oh, yeah. for for uh, for a good chunk of time why is it important for the audience to go see the batman in a movie theater i mean
1: to be honest with you that's the other thing that i would say about seeing it in 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 dolby uh in dolby cinema is that This immersive quality, it's not an experience you can have at home. It just isn't. There's something about this being in this world and experiencing the highs and lows and even the intimate stuff, feeling the rain fall around you the way that it happens when in those scenes where he's with Alfred in the hospital or watching that Batmobile chase or watching him do, you know, do his wingsuiting and see him take his hard landing like the experience, even just the the torrential rains around you, like you constantly feel the atmosphere and see the atmosphere. To go into that club, like one of my favorite moments, both visually and sound-wise, is when he goes and he's looking for Penguin and he goes into the club and you suddenly are in that club. You can't have that experience at home. It's a very immersive, visceral experience. And I think it's, to me, it's such a unique big-screen experience. And I, I really, I hope that as many people as possible can see it in that way. I mean, to me, look, I, I am somebody, I made movies from when I was a kid because I was, you know, I went to the church that was the cinema, right? I love movies and going to the theater to have a communal experience and seeing it with the best picture and the best sound and to experience that with an audience too. I have to say one of the fun things for me, you know, as we were reaching toward, you know, things were coming down enough in the pandemic that we could have people watching it with masks and this kind of stuff when we were testing the movie. And to see this movie with an audience is another level. Like not only are because it's a Batman movie, right? So when you experience the 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 movie and the highs and lows, and you suddenly get people laughing and cheering, like there's something about that communal experience. There's something about the visual and the sound experience that is something that only theaters can do. And so, I just don't want that experience to go away. It's, to me, it's it's one of the transcendent things that you know in, in my life to be able to have that experience. And I think to see this movie in that way is just it's, you just can't match it.
0: I feel very fortunate because uh, I've only seen the film once, but I got to see it in Vision and Atmos. So I yeah. feel like I've had the most You definitely did see it in- Yeah, most. you
1: saw it in the version that I think it, that, that, that shows the best. I mean, you said it to me the day. You were here, right? I was like, this, when I saw it, this was, it. Dave was like and I said, I said, Dave, this is incredible. And he goes, this is the way to see it.
2: Yeah, and, and it's the way to see it for the first time. Right. When you have yeah. your, your preconceived notions of what this film are are from trailers or whatever, and you sit down- and it starts up. You can only ever have that—that that seeing something for the first time once. This is the way to have that first time. Yeah.
0: Well said, gentlemen. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about Batman. It's a—I said it to you before—you made a hell of a movie, oh, and I think it's fantastic. And so and uh, best of best of success to to you as you roll this thing out into the world.
1: Thank you. We're excited to finally get it out there and have people go. Yeah, go see it on the big screen.
0: So obviously, Gotham City. We're talking dark. We're talking a lot of rain. Uh, Can you talk about sort of, you know, what was your approach to designing the look of Gotham City uh, and and just this this milieu of of the Batman?
3: We needed Gotham City is a character, and we know that we know we know what Gotham's based on. We know where Gotham's based on, and we've seen Gotham in so many different uh, iterations with from every single you know batman film uh, ever made and it's a really good opportunity to sort of have fun with what we know as a city but also to take it into a slightly surreal direction um but not so surreal that it's unrecognizable like it needed to be the lighting needs to be super um super real you know it needed to be you needed to feel like that in every scene that could have been around the corner from you know, the burger bar or the place where you sort of had a drink if you were in that big city. So it it was important that that place felt real. It felt natural, but also had to have a certain heightenedness to it. It was a certain sort of level of um, kind of uh, wetness to it, which that was the the good thing about that too, was that we tried to um, always have it either be raining or be wet. So constantly everything was wet. It, it It didn't feel like the place ever dried. So you can almost smell the mold.
0: For sure. I feel like, uh, you know, th- one of the things I love about the movie is that it's, it's intimate, but it's also operating on a huge scale as well. You guys balance that out really nicely and so many amazing set pieces. I'm thinking about the car, se- you know, the the chase sequence on the, the freeway, which is just, <laughs> just mind blowing. But I feel like the, uh, the imagery of the Batman kind of emerging from the fire and he's been seen upside down by the penguin in the car. I feel like it's already becoming iconic. So can you talk a little bit about your approach to shooting that sequence?
3: Well, listen, that, that was a fantastically fun sequence to shoot, wasn't it? Like it's a, it's a great fun chase, uh, in the rain, you know, we it, that needed to be visceral, and it needed to kind of be everything that you experience. Like the, the, you needed the audience to be literally strapped to those cars. You wanted them to be, you know, edge of their seat type of thing. So we made sure, for the most part, again, as per the whole movie, we tried to stay with the characters, either you know, with the car, with the characters, over the characters, through the windscreen, through the through the windshield, um, through the back. So we tried to where we could stay as 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 close as we could. Um you know, the the, the, the the tricky part with that is that obviously you can't all tell a story when you're strapped to cars. So there were some shots that were outside of the car, but we tried to minimise those. Um, but, yeah, I mean, one of the things about doing a, a, a comic book movie, and, and I think it kind of under, undermines what this movie is by calling it a comic book movie, but I mean, the comic books are integral in our, in our society. They're integral in our, in our visual vocabulary. Like for the most part, most people have had an experience with comics and we, we've learned how to read comics and there's a certain iconography that goes along with the images that are drawn in comics. So I wanted to be true to that. I wanted to, 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 to recognise and to celebrate uh, the, 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 the beautiful artistry that goes into designing a comic book frame. And where possible, that's what I felt like I wanted to do with the frames in this movie.
0: It's great. You definitely succeeded. Um, so, you know, we were able to sit down and talk with Matt and Dave quite a bit, uh, in person in Los Angeles a couple of weeks ago after, after we saw the film, one of the things that Matt talked about, which I wanted to ask you about was, uh, kind of your process around your, your testing before the shoot. Uh, one of the things that Matt talked about was the decision to shoot, um, anamorphic lenses. And also he, he talked about, he talked about, um, uh, testing all these different lenses and that you guys gravitated to the ones, he called them broken, uh, that they all had these idiosyncrasies. So can you talk about a little bit about that process and how it influenced the look of the film?
3: Again, knowing that we were going to be doing a film out process, which is what we did, we went to negative and then went to print and we tested all this in advance. We knew that we needed a lens that had a certain, that resolved slightly more than a regular lens. The problem with that, though, is if a lens resolves, it resolves across the entire frame. And Matt and I, for this film, were very much drawn to vintage lenses. Like, we, you know, we grew up watching 70s films, like, uh, on C-series, Panavision Anamorphics. Um, so we understood the power of what an anamorphic lens could do when it falls off, because we know what happens to happen. Like, you frame in the centre pretty much, and you don't, do, you don't do big profiles very often. Like, it's... It's kind of something where you keep the the, the the focus more in the center of the frame so that every time you edit, your, your eye is not darting around the frame. So there's there's a value in doing that because it looks it's – a, it's a great style. But because we were going through a process, we needed to make the center resolve quite well. So uh, uh, Ari worked with us to build a set of lenses that I think were based on the master anamorphics, which meant that they had inbuilt resolution, but then the edges fell off. And when Matt says they were broken, there were sometimes we looked at it and went, whoa, people are going to, people are going to never employ us again, you know, because we're, we're putting these lenses on Rob Patterson and Zoe Kravitz that, that technically are probably, you could argue, are incorrect.
0: I'm not really worried about you not working again. I, I must say, I think that, I think that you're in, you're in pretty good shape. Uh, one of the things that Matt was also talking about, he was singing your praises and he was talking about how fast you are on set and how fast, facile you are and, and your ability to pivot. He was, I think he t- uh, told a story about like, uh, uh, you know, you having to, uh, to turn around and do and shoot the reverse angle on something in only 10 minutes before you lost the sun. But I, I know that your success in doing that has a lot to do with pre-lighting and preparation. So can you talk about kind of your approach to pre-lighting?
3: I mean, on a set where possible, um, I will always try and spend some time because you need to understand the limitations of a set before you get onto it. You definitely don't want to be wasting time on a shoot. Anything that takes away from the acting, I feel is to be protected. You know, any time that I need on set that takes away from acting, I have to have a really good reason to be doing something. Um, so if I can do any of that in advance in prep, either the day before, the night before, the week before, um, then I, and I do. I also like to be able to try and spend that time on set with a director in, in a pre-light N- not to spend just to have them again have their brain in the space before they walk on and think about performance so then we start thinking about okay this shot requires that light when we turn around we turn it it's almost like you try and do as much in your head like a theater show like you try and go okay this is what we're gonna need when we turn around and so in a, you try and get as many of those pieces ready at the ready like pit crew to spin in, and when you turn around, turn those off, turn that on, bring that in. I like, and then be ready to go. So it's trying to—it's a bit of a chess game because you're trying to think a few steps ahead, and you're trying to do the whole "what if" question. Well, what if we have to turn around? What if we can't come back? What all these "what ifs"? And so you're trying to sort of prepare for all the all the op- all the options that, that are going to happen. That's great.
0: So I, I feel like, you know, as technology progresses, we're seeing really um, that line between production and post-production just continuing to blur. And I know that you, um, you know, y- you shot a lot of the Mandalorian and that was, uh, uh, you know, you had a lot of experience on shooting, you know, in the volume. And I know that you brought that into the Batman a little bit as well. So can you talk about like uh, uh, h- how the changing technology and that blurring line is affecting the way you design shots and how you shoot?
3: i mean on this on this film we had a, a lot of our sets built in three d so we could actually uh previs before we uh before we went on to set it's a huge 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 thing because you know what set pieces need to be done really well and where you can you know light wise you don't have to light so having that information is really handy um so we we had that at our disposal. we also built a volume for a number of sets on this which again allows. The performers to perform rather than be waiting for the right light. Again, going back to what I was saying about anything that's, that that holds up production, or holds up acting, is to be avoided at all costs. So, where we could, we uh, you know, we built some sets into a volume, which meant that we had a consistent dusk, or a consistent uh, early morning, or a consistent night, um, so that you know we could then allow the performances to the performers to perform and not have to be worried technically about a cloud coming over or, you know, a sound of a helicopter ruining a performance.
0: Thank you, Greg, Matt, and Dave for joining me today. And extra special thanks to our friends over at Warner Brothers for helping us put this conversation together. As I'm sure you can imagine, Matt Reeves is a very busy guy right now, and it was a a great honor uh, to be able to get him to do these two podcast episodes with us to discuss his work uh, on the Batman for the Dolby podcast. Speaking of busy guys, as you know, Greg Fraser is also nominated for an Academy Award for Best Cinematography for Dune. You'll be able to hear more of my conversation with Greg, as well as from many of the other nominees in the Best Cinematography category in that upcoming podcast episode. So be sure you're subscribed to us, the Dolby Institute podcast. You can find us by searching for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts or via the links in our show notes. And while you're there, you can also find links to buy tickets to the Batman, which you can find at Dolby Cinema near you. Trust me on this. Seeing the film in Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos is definitely worth it, and I'm not just saying that because, well, you know who I work for. It's truly a spectacular experience, and uh, it's a, a great way to see the movie. Until next time, thank you again for joining us. This has been Sound and Image Lab, brought to you by the Dolby Institute. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry with production support by Taylor Hines. And our production coordinator is Sunny Chen. Thank you for listening.